Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. As you know, I I missed a week in there. Robert uh, stepped in for me to bring you the word. So I was hoping that we would finish up the Olivet Discourse perfectly just before 2024 hit. But we're going to begin the new year completing that. Uh, so we have one more message after today um, but, uh, to complete the Olivet Discourse. But today we're in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 to 20. So I invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Beginning in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he who and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you have delivered me to my my two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be more given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of Christ. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord for help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your word. And as we come to it today, we ask again that it would not fall on deaf ears today, but that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, to apply it, Lord, that you would equip me as a teacher of your word, that I might, um, that it, I, I would be gifted by your spirit to make it known and understood. Lord, we ask this 
Um, because even in, the, in these things, even in going over scriptures which we, we, we seem to know and go over again and again, we are helpless apart from the work of your spirit and grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you, uh, if you need to, uh, as we come to this text, I want to ask a couple questions. If, 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 if you need to prepare for a test, what do you need to do generally? You need to study. If you need to prepare for a career, what will you do? In general, what will you do? You'll pursue the, the necessary education and training, depending on that field, to, to prepare you that is necessary for that field. If we're going to prepare for a power outage, what do you need to do? Well, that will largely depend on your circumstances and the, re- the resources that are available to you. Uh, most people have come to believe, when it comes to things like that, that it's the responsibility of the state to take care of our basic needs when emergencies strike. Um, but if 2020 taught me anything, it's not only is that not only is that not biblically true, but it has actually pr- proven time and time again throughout history that civil gov- governments are among the least effective in uh, in uh, uh, distributing disaster relief relief. Uh, to, the, to the world. So instead what I have done is I got a book a couple of years ago called Prep, The Prepper's Long-Term Survival Guide. Okay, The Prepper's Long-Term Survival Guide by a guy named Jim Cobb. And what I learned is twofold. Now I don't know, has anybody here, have you heard what, it, what a prepper is? Right, It's somebody who's, it's, it's just a short form for somebody who's preparing for the worst, basically, natural disasters, emergencies that could strike. And what I learned well, on the one hand is that there is a subculture out there who basically live and breathe um, prepping for all and every kind of disaster that could possibly unexpectedly strike. And in other words, what I, what I learned is that there's, there's this, this group of people that basically... You can never be prepared enough, right? The prepping never ends. It's just, it's a life of preparing for, for the unknown. And I quickly realized, okay, I can't, like, it, it, it kind of wants to suck you into it. And I really, and you gotta, you gotta be careful about that. On the other hand, I also learned from it uh, that there were some very basic and attainable steps that I could take now in order to be equipped to effectively care for and provide for my family in the face of realistic and very possible disasters that could, that could strike. And not only to be prepared to care for my own family, but to position ourselves, my family, to be, that we could be a blessing to our neighbors and to our com- community when difficult circumstances strike. Okay, so there's, I learned that I learned there's two, there's both sides, and, and there were things I kind of left, and there were a, a few things I picked up. Now, my point in bringing this up is that we can acknowledge the significance and wisdom of preparing for the unknown, and yet what is known, right? We know something is coming. We know that we need to be ready, but we don't. There's things about it that we don't know when it could strike, for example. Yet if we have no idea what is required to prepare for those events, then we're ultimately none the wiser, right? Like it's, it's, we can know the importance of preparation, but if we don't actually know what, how to prepare, then it's, we're, we're no better off. 
And so Jesus has already, as we look to our text, Jesus has already pronounced and warned and prepared his disciples for the imminent local judgment of unbelieving Israel before their own generation would pass away. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And it would, it, this, in a way, would serve as a historic testimony and really a seal and guarantee to the certainty of the greater worldwide and eternal judgments that would come at the end of the age, which Christ now explains will come on a day and hour that no one could possibly know except the Father. And ever since verse 36 of chapter 24... The focus of Christ's discourse on the Mount of Olives has been upon his second bodily coming at the end of the world as we know it. And this is, this is, is, there is a sense of urgency here in that fact that an unknown coming would, could take place at any moment, right? The need to be ready now. Emphasizing that, again, the need to get right with God today. To have our sins be forgiven, to be reconciled with him. And yet, as Jesus proceeds to instruct the apostles, the nature of the parables, they shift towards the unknown coming, not just being about him coming any moment now, but that that could also mean a long delay. It it could mean that he could come a lot lot, uh, uh, later than now. And the kind of conduct then, and the work that he expects of his disciples, and in an uh, in anticipation of his return as it is delayed. Jeremy uh, wrote a son, visited a few weeks ago, and he, he came and walked us through the parable of the ten virgins in verses 1 to 13 a few weeks ago, where he rightly highlighted the call to be diligent to prepare in the present for the unknown timing of the return of Christ in the future. And I believe that principal question Jesus seeks to answer now as we turn to the parable of the talents turns towards what must we do? Or more fundamentally, what must we be in order to be ready for his return in the future? We must recognize the importance of being prepared for Christ's return, yes, but we must go beyond that to know what does that look like to be ready for him to come? And so we turn to verse 14 to 15. Verse 14 to 15. He says, For, what, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went... Away. So first, right away, he says, for it will be like. And so he's continuing this series of parables. He, is, we, he assumes we, we know what it is. Jesus is still elaborating on the topic that he turned to back in chapter 24, verse 36. That is the day and hour of his coming at the end of the age. So in other words, in response to his disciples, Jesus is explaining that his coming will first require his going away. And so he illustrates his departure and coming as a man who is going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So the servants here are represented, uh, representative of Christ's disciples. And some of whom that we see here are true disciples. 
While one, we're going to see, is evidently a disciple in name only, a servant in name only. And they base that on the fact that the judgment of the wicked and unfaithful servant is eternal damnation, as indicated in verse 30. These are people who confess Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, right? They call him master, but they do not do his father's will. And so he'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the kind of servants we have here. So we're talking about, in some degree, the church. We're talking about people who would identify with Christ. But there's a distinction that is being made between those who will be blessed in Christ as his servants and those who will end up um, being cast into the outer darkness when Christ returns. And so the parable says that the master entrusted to them his property. Colossians 1, we just need to take note of that. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, that is for by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or, or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created, uh, were created through him and for him. Nothing we possess, as I'm, I'm applying this, this parable to, to the world that we're, we're put in, nothing we possess, whether it be material or spiritual or intellectual or influence, none of it originates with us. Neither will any of these things that we produce from it ultimately um, remain with us. All of it is from him and all of it goes to him. And rightly so. Your opportunities and ability to serve Christ with your wealth, with your health, with your families, with your knowledge and skills, with your strength, with your time, all of it ultimately belongs to the Master. The fruit and credit for all your work, all ultimately belongs to Him, including yourself. And that's part of what, what, what will be come out here that the wicked servant misses. And this is represented by the five talents which he gives to the one servant. This meaning uh, uh, these resources, these gifts that he gives are represented by five talents, which he gives to one servant, two talents, which he gives to another, and then one talent, which he entrusted uh, to the, the third servant. And these talents are not a reference to skills or abilities, um, but to a specific unit of weight that they would have used. So it's not using talent as we would in English, right? Saying your, your gifts, your talented, your ability. But it's referring to a, a, a unit of weight that they would use to measure money, gold or silver. And uh, it was roughly about 100 pounds of what, what talent was. So it, you would be asking a, a, you know, a talent of what, right? It would be 100 pounds of, of gold, a talent of silver. You would, you would need some kind of reference to apply that, that measurement. Of course, when, when we apply that to us, uh, this idea of talents being distributed to us from the master, Scripture is clear that even our abilities are given to us uh, from, by God as he determines. Not just 
the resources and, and the, the time and the, the opportunities he gives us, but also our abilities are all ultimately, God is distributing all of that to us. And so there, this distinction kind of becomes less important when, when we're applying this prince, the principle of this parable to our service of Christ, the distinction between ability and opportunity. But to understand the parable itself, we see that the servant's natural ability or their talent are actually the factor that the master uses to determine how many talents that each servant receives, right? It says that he gives to each according to his ability. So the ability is what determines the, oppor- the amount of opportunity that that servant was given to serve the master. And we're going to dig into exactly what those talents look like a little later when we get to our application. I'm going to help us kind of just bring that home for us. But at first, I believe the, we, I want to get through the rest of the parable because it helps make it really a lot clearer for us. So what we have been, uh, we have been illustrated for us here so far is Christ the master leaving his property, that is all of creation, to the stewardship of his servants, the church, to rule and subdue it and to be fruitful and advance his redemptive mission to all the world. And then we have, and, and the, so we, the, the parable moves forward to distinguishing two kinds of service that is offered to the, to the, to the master. Uh, verse 16 to 18. He says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. A clash of two different kinds of service are being presented to us here. While the first two servants are dealing with different resources, different amounts, the same degree of productivity is, is mentioned here. They both double the investment that, it's, that has been entrusted to them. Whereas the third servant distinguishes himself from the others by basically doing the least that he could possibly do to secure his master's money by absence, by the absence of fruitfulness. Now, burying your money in the ground was a common way for them to secure treasure in those days. Now, Jesus does mention, or the master later, right, in the parable, mentions a kind of banking that was available at that time that he could have given and got interest. But that was nowhere near as secure as, our, as the banking systems we have today. Which, by the way, even that's not saying much today. But at that time, it was much clearer. You're way better off. And it's getting that way too, still for us now. Putting it somewhere else. And so that's what he does. He buries it in the ground. And the implications of this conflict advances as the master returns in verse 19. And the servants are called upon to give a reckoning for how they've handled the funds that have been entrusted to them. So verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So first I want to look at this this aspect of the reckoning of the fruitful servants. The settling of accounts in verse 19 makes it clear that the money was originally given for the purpose of being traded, of being invested, so as to accrue a profit on the money that was given. And the master's response to, his, to the servant's labors corresponds to this, that this was indeed what, what they were being asked to do. As the servant who received the five talents, he hands over five talents more, and the master's response we see is not to reward the servant a share in the profit as if he had gone above and beyond what was expected of him, right? As, as if it was, would be a bonus for him. Rather, we see he has done exactly as he was told and enabled to do. In verse 21, the master responds, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So rather than receiving a share of the profit, he receives something far more valuable than a temporary payment for what he's done. But what he receives, but what he receives is, uh, is that of earning his master's trust and his friendship. The word good there, good and faithful servant, is used in the sense here of being useful. To be good, has, there's a sense in which it's to be useful for its purpose. Profitable to the master. As he was faithful in the service to which he was called. That is, he proved himself to be both trustworthy and fruitful with what his master had given him. While I believe entering into the joy of your master there that he says. It has a reference to the reward that is prepared for the saints in the eternal state of the new heavens and earth. At some point, the question is always raised, but what what will, I mean, as as we enter into heaven, as we enter into glory, what are we going to be doing for all eternity? Like, right? Like, what follows that? And the master says in verse 21, he says, you have been faithful with little. Here, where are we? Verse 21. As you've been faithful over little, I will set you over much. And it's in this context that I believe he is describing the eternal state of the faithful as entering into the joy of your master. That is, of tending to his affairs, tending to his kingdom, no longer as a servant, but as a partner, as a friend. To not only be the partakers of our master's redemption, but to enter into our master's joy of administering his peace, of administering his justice and and being in the productivity in the new creation as co-heirs with him in glory. When creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So that's, that's where his joy and reward will become our highest joy and reward. Hopefully that is 
that is already in the process of taking place. But I believe that is what, what it will ultimately seal it all for us. That as we enter into the joy of our master, right, uh, our, what we delight in will become the desire of our heart. As we delight ourselves in the Lord and what he delights in, so our heart will follow after that. Now, as, as a bit of an application note, the master's response to the second servant, servant reinforces the same overarching principle of the expectation and blessedness of proving yourself to be a fruitful servant. So even though the second servant only produces two more talents compared to the first servant who produces five more, he still proves himself to be equally as fruitful, as productive by doubling the master's money, what, doubling what was given to him. And therefore, he receives the exact same commendation from the master in verse 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So their reward is not based upon the total quantity of their return, but the quality and faithfulness of their work. It is not a matter of presenting more or less than the brother or sister next to you, as it is in being diligent and faithful to sow the seeds of his redeeming grace that he has given to you and poured upon you in abundance wherever you have opportunity to. Now, many people make, and usually this is actually the, what I hear people making this to be the primary point of this parable, which I don't believe is the case. It is nonetheless, it's an important application and a great illustration that can be made in this regard, in regards to our service for the Lord and in comparison to others and how the Lord blesses it. Scripture is clear. You could look at 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4.10. That we are not to envy or covet the different abilities and opportunities the Lord entrusts to, to each of the members of the body of Christ. Right? And 1 Corinthians 12 is clear. It, we're all one body. Right? And, and that's the point he drives home in that. And, 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 act, and uh, that it's the weaker bodies that end up, uh, that receive more honor. And those that are stronger, who, they don't need that, that greater honor. And, and, and how he... he, he, he um, he, tr- he works it all according to his good will. And so if you ever find yourself, but this is an application of this text. And so I wanted to say, if you ever find yourself that you have been wallowing in envy and self-pity over how little the Lord has entrusted to you in comparison to others and how, how unfruitful you are compared to others around you. Or on the other side, if you find yourself boasting in your fruitfulness, in comparison to the weaker brother beside you. I want to call you to repent of that. To be humbled before the Lord who gives and takes away and seek His forgiveness for that. And then go and be fruitful and multiply the grace that the Lord gives you each day as you walk in His service. But that, again, that's, I want to get us to where, where Jesus is going with this. That's a side application We've reviewed the reckoning of the first two fruitful servants. Let's turn to verse 24 to the reckoning of the third servant. He also who who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering 
where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Note how the, how the servant's response doesn't begin with, as the others, with, you know, he, he, Master, you gave me five, here's five more. A presentation of, of the fruit. But he begins with an excuse. He knows he has failed to produce the results he was both expected and capable of producing. And so notice, he points the finger where? Who does he blame? He blames the master for his lack of fruit. He notices, he notes the incredible industrious nature of his master. Who without ever having to put a shovel in the ground or break a sweat himself. Which the servant believes to be ultimate, which the servant believes ultimately to the, be to the benefit of nobody but the master himself. He's talking about a, the master. Essentially, he's a businessman, right? He invests money and he puts it into places, and, 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 he, and he he um, he accrues a return, a profit on that, without himself actually having to do any any labor himself. And so he sees the fruitfulness. He sees the abundance that comes from this master. And the master identifies the servant's wickedness and slothfulness in a couple verses. But it is important to catch the fundamental sin which the servant, which his excuse exposes here. That's what I want you to see. In Malachi chapter 3, this is, I believe this exposes the point. It's a parallel to what is being said. In Malachi chapter 3, God exposes how the people of God were, were shortchanging him. By withholding their tithes and their offerings from him. And he exposes their motive for doing so in verse 13. And I believe it, it, there's, we see a parallel in the response of the, the wicked servant here. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 13. Your words, he says, have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how, how have we spoken against you? You have said, this is, and this is what he says. This is their excuse. This is their, their claim against God. They say it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as a, in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Right? What, what profit is there in serving the Lord and, 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 and um, sowing and investing in the work of the Lord? In verse 15, they say, and now we call the arrogant blessed. What, what, again, the, the, the point is, and they're complaining, they're saying, we, we do all this work, we do all this service for the Lord, and it seems like it goes back to, to Psalm 37. It's the wicked who are being blessed. It's the wicked who, who, who increase, and it's, and it's the righteous who seem to be punished for it. And so they complain, and they say, what, what benefit is there to, the, to serving the Lord? In other words, there is nothing in it for me. And now, the real sin here is likely not where you think it, it is as we turn to, the, to the, our servant. The sin is not in, in, in the fact that, that they are expecting or desiring God's blessing upon their service. As if to expect and to desire His rewards is, is, is sinful, is, is wrong. God is a loving Father who delights 
in giving good, good gifts to his children. Who delights in his children coming to him and asking for good gifts. The sin here is in believing and making God out to be a stingy, corrupt, unfaithful father who gives his children snakes and rocks instead of food. Right? Who, who, is, who is only there to take and to take and to take and really never gives anything in return. Hebrews 11, 5, 6, again, just further elaborating on this, says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, he says, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists And that he rewards those who seek him. If you're going to please God, if you're going to have faith in God, you must not only believe he exists, but you must be convinced that he rewards those who seek him. If you don't believe that, you're not going to believe in him. You're going to run from him. You're going to hate him. You're going to reject him. You're going to despise him. And so the, the third servant did not believe that his master rewarded those who honored him in their labors. And so he acted wickedly and, and slothfully, he says. Verse 26, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my command, I should have received what was my, uh, my own with interest. In other words, Not only is his excuse unacceptable, but it actually serves, the excuse serves to condemn his own actions. It demonstrates that as misguided as he was concerning his his master's intentions and his master's uh, uh, expectation of him, the servant's own words were enough to condemn him as a wicked and useless servant. Although he clearly does not know his master in truth. Because as we see how the master deals with the other two servants. He clearly has misunderstood the situation. We see by by his excuse that he knows enough to demonstrate that he is without excuse. That he, if he is, if he is not wicked, then he has at the very least proven himself to be slothful. The master says, as being useless to him. But in this case, he is clearly both wicked and slothful. And then we come to the coming judgment of, of, of the service that is offered. Verse 28 to 30. So take the talent from him and uh, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He who seeks to save his life will what? Will lose it. But whoever loses his life, Jesus said in Matthew 16, for, my, for his sake, will find it. 
It, it is e- it's easy to get carried away and read all kinds of morals and application into this parable, as I, as I said. And, and it, it's not, there's nothing wrong with, with again, using Jesus' parables to, to illustrate other, different points. But the conclusion that we have here actually makes the overarching point, the point that Jesus is giving this to his disciples on the Mount of Olives and giving it to us today. The conclusion makes it quite simple, narrowing the whole point down to this for us. Out of all the applications we can make, this is what he brings it down to. The servant who is prepared for the return of Christ can be known by his fruit. The servant who is prepared for the return of Christ can be known by his fruit. This is not a new, this is nothing new in the, the Gospel of Matthew to this point. But we need to hear the same points again and again, sometimes in different contexts. And the reward of the faithful servant will be yet more fruitfulness and blessing still, while the judgment of the wicked servant who deceives himself will be the loss of what little he so desperately sought to retain, even his own soul in eternal condemnation in hell. And so while we are saved by grace through faith, and again, that's, if I could even make the point down to this, the point is, um, is that it's all of grace. Right? Being prepared for the coming of Christ is, that, is, 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 is all of grace upon grace. That he who has been given, he who has received much, will, much more will be given right, upon you. And so while we are saved by grace through faith, not a result of your works, James 2.18 says, I will show you my faith by my works. Right? I will show my faith and I'll make it visible. How can we... Like, well, how do we see it? How do we make it known? By my works. No amount of your works could ever justify and cleanse your guilt of sin. Only the righteous blood of Christ is sufficient to secure the salvation of sinful men. Hence, the only way for his salvation to be applied to you is for you to receive it by faith as the great gift that it is. But what does faith look like? That's where Jesus is pointing us to in this parable. What does faith, what is this saving faith that, 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 that is to prepare us for his coming? What does it look like? Where do we see it? Well, it is not going to look exactly the same in, the, in every good and faithful servant. Right? It's not going to look exactly the same in the one, in the good and faithful servant who receives one talent. And, the one, and a different good and faithful servant who receives five, and another one who receives ten, right? The ultimate result, the ultimate fruits that we see, it's, it's not going to be exactly the same. But the common thread among them will manifest itself in the life of all who possess a true and sincere faith in the saving gift of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And that common thread is fruitfulness. Fruit. You will know them by their fruit. John 15 is a great one. Uh, there were so many times I just kept coming back to John 15 in parallel to what Jesus is teaching here. There's, and I don't have time to show you how many there are. But John 15, verse 1 to 2. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does, that does not bear fruit... 
he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it what? That it may be more fruitful. You see the parallel? And later on in verse 5 to 6, he says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Okay, And then the parallels continue in, in John 15. But I want us to conclude here by revisiting the concept of the talents that I said of, of this parable, what they are meant to represent. What are these talents that we're supposed to grab hold of here from the Lord and, and invest and put to work? They are generally representative of the varying number, I believe, of opportunities, as I said at the start, to distinguish between our abilities and the opportunity to serve Him. We have, we're given certain abilities to serve, but we also must be given various opportunities. And I, and I believe the talents are being presented in the opportune sense. And so they're generally representative of the varying number of opportunities we are given to serve the Lord. But what specifically are these talents? Again, how are they presented to us to take hold of and spend for the sake of Christ in our lives? And I believe in their most basic sense, these talents are given to us in the form of the promises of God's word. So Proverbs 8, verse 10, there's plenty of examples, but just to make my case. Proverbs 8 says, verse 10 says, Take my instruction instead of silver. Again, in, the talents are clearly a reference to money. They're trading it. They're investing it. They're getting a return. He gives five talents. He gets ten more. Well, Proverbs 8.10, he says, Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. And then, and then Psalm 19, verse 9, is another good example. Psalm 19, 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. So how do we invest these precious talents of God's word that, have been, that, have been, that you have received and have been poured upon you? How do we sow them in anticipation of receiving a harvest in return for His glory? Again, it's nothing. this isn't rocket science and hopefully you hear this every Sunday. We believe them and hope in God's future blessing upon them by putting them to work by our obedience to them and anticipation of its growth and blessing in the future. Right? When, when you think about every act of obedience, it can either be an act of faith or, or an act of uh, lack of faith. Right? Like, uh, you, you do it either as an investment that you're sowing into the future 
that your obedience, confessing my sin or, or you know, asking, t- telling my, whatever I've done to, to my brother or sister in that moment is not going to benefit you, right? At that time, you're just thinking, this is only going to hurt me. This is going to hurt my reputation. But why do you do it? Because he's commanded to and you believe that God says there will be a blessing at the end of it. Right? Why, why do we testify to Christ when, even when, when persecution comes, even when it's made hard? Um, why, why do we tell the truth in times where, where maybe kind of telling that white lie would be easier? Because we trust, that what, that we trust his word, that there is a blessing in telling the truth and not in telling the lie. It's, all, it's either done in faith or, or, or it's done in unbelief. And so we invest these talents of God's word, I believe, by sowing them in faith. We put them to work. And how can people who claim to believe in Christ, how do we bury them, right? If, if that's how we can invest these talents, how, what's an example? How do we bury the talents of the promises that God's given us? And I believe we do that by claiming to believe and cling to the truth and promises of God's word. So everybody here, you've, you've heard... You're, you're, I just, just by virtue of you being here, you're either one or, or, or both of these, one of these servants. You've received the talents, the blessing of God's word, of his gospel, of his salvation, that, and his grace that he offers you. Well, how, do we, how can we, we bury it? I, I believe we bury it when we we'll, 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 we'll hear these, we'll hear it and we'll say amen to that. We'll claim it and say this, that's good. And yet we'll never sow them in the fields that he's placed you in. Right? That you'll never put it into practice. You'll never put, it on, put God on the line. There, again, there's, there's two kinds of testing of God, right? There's the testing that, that doesn't believe him. But then there's the testing that, that, well, Malachi 3, when it comes to the tithe, he says, put me to the test. Like, when God has promised something, right? And he said, this is my will, this is my desire to bless you. God says, like, take me up on that. Take him up on his promises. Put them to work. Even if it doesn't feel like it's going to, res- to, to result in your good or, or your betterment. Take God up to, on it. Put, act uh, act in, in, in obedience, trusting that, that his word is more reliable than your feelings in that moment. Rather than burying his word, his commands, his teaching that you've received. If that is you, and if the Spirit is convicting you of all the wasted time, of all the wasted opportunity, because when push came to shove, you trusted more in the promises of the immediate and temporary comforts and pleasures of the world, rather than trusting in the eternal fruit and blessing of the wisdom and promises of God's word. You have yet another talent being presented to you today. Another opportunity being given to you today to confess your hypocrisy and the wickedness of all that wasted time and opportunity that you've hidden and buried and to turn to him and truly surrender your life to the master's service believing in his peaceful intention and goodwill towards you. I'll close with John 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 10. 
And he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege, for the grace, for the blessing of your revealed word, of your revealed will for us. Lord, it is a great responsibility and calling that you give to all who hear your word. There is, there is a decision that must be made by all of us to either re- to respond in negligence and in unbelief or in faith. And to, be, and to get to work and to take it and to, deal it and to sow it in the, in, the, in the fields that you've put us. Lord, help us by your grace um, to be those servants, to be diligent in the service that you've called us to. Lord, and in a way, of course, these parables, they're simplified and made very clear cut so we can get the point. But God, if there's also going to be areas in our lives and those in the fruitful servants. There's areas that we need to be pruned, John 15 says. There's areas that we can be more, yet more fruitful in. And so I pray uh, that uh, you would be, that your spirit would go before us as, as the application, the talents, as we, we read in this parable. It's very clear. We're all, you've put us all in different places, different gifts, different abilities, according to your will. And so Lord, help us to set our, our focus on you, our master and your will and what you call us to do. And bless it, Lord. Bless the labors of our hands um, that for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your name to be known in our homes and in our communities, in our, in our church and in our conversations as we fellowship. Lord, and convict, Lord, the, the unfaithful servant here. That they, in your grace, Lord, would receive the talent that is being offered to them. The opportunity to be reconciled to you. And to be used for your service and for your glory. That ultimately, as we come back to the points being made in this parable, that ultimately, Lord, um, it is not in anything in us. It's not any, ultimately, even our strength and our own abilities. It all comes from you. You're not calling us to, to a task to which you will not equip us and enable us to do. And so, Lord, the only excuse is unbelief. So, Lord, I pray that you would, your spirit would go before us today, um, giving faith to the, to the unfaithful and strengthening the faith in the hands of those who entrust themselves to you and, and, and seek you, trusting that you reward those who seek you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.